Welcome back to Coming Up for Air with hosts Dominique Simone Levine, Laurie McDougall, and Kayla Solomon. This podcast is produced with love by the Allies and Recovery team in solidarity with our listeners. Come in and sit with us for conversations on the most pertinent topics for families navigating a loved one's addiction. We created this podcast along with the learning modules and discussion blog in support of you. We salute the work you are doing and your dedication to helping your loved one find a way through. And now, coming up for air. Hi, everyone. This is Laurie McDougall on Coming Up for Air, and I'm here with my co-host, Kayla Solomon. Hi, Kayla. How are you? Hi, Laurie. Good. And today we have a special guest, Mimi English. And Mimi English is a former therapist, although still has her licensing, but a former family therapist. And now she is a consultant for, and you may help me out a little bit with this, Mimi, you are, a, you are now consulting lawyers that uh, represent families, parents, grandparents, and even foster children, or all the players involved with substance use disorder and keeping that family together or what to do. If you could just go ahead and explain it, I might not be the best at it. What I'm hired to do by the attorneys is to be providing them either with a report or testimony at court. And so I'm hired as an expert witness and hired with my CV reflecting that I have a specialty in substance abuse counseling, family therapy, family dynamics, child development, particularly working with very young children. And as I said before, I've done a lot of family therapy through the years, initially working with people with HIV AIDS and their families. And then after I retired, which I'm not very good at, apparently, I started doing this other thing. So I've been doing this. I've done about 120 cases in total, and I usually have an active caseload of about 10 to 12 where I go out, observe the visits that are set up by the Department of Children and Families and try to determine a clinical formulation. And then I am also part of a group called A Home Within, which is a group of older seasoned therapists who also are not good at retiring, taking on cases pro bono for people who've been involved with the system so that they don't have to deal with the constant change in therapists, which for anybody who has had a lot of significant losses, which most of these folks have, it's helpful to know that they can see somebody, that it's free, and that they can see them as long as they want to. Wow. Okay. That is a lot. Very complex issues. And welcome. And thank you for coming and visiting with us today. Kayla. As a therapist myself, my interest is the dynamics that you're talking about. So if you could describe what patterns you see on a regular basis in these families, what are you noticing? What are you seeing in terms of family dynamics and how the substance use actually affects not only the children, but everybody in the, everybody in the family? Well, a lot of my cases involve people having been incarcerated or family members who are currently incarcerated for substance-related crimes, sometimes for 
domestic violence, but often there's some substance involved in all of that dynamic as well. A lot of the people I work with are struggling economically and struggling with all the basic things like housing and how to get food on the table, how to get from one appointment to the next without a car or without a driver's license, how to take care of children. And there's a lot of strife, I would say, that's the best word to describe what happens when the biological parent either wants his or her parents to take the children if the children are taken from them, or they don't want that. But the department looks at it and tries to determine what's in the best interest of the children. And sometimes they place them with the grandparents, even though the parents have enough of a problematic relationship with their own parents that they don't want that added layer. But it's complicated because obviously it's better for the children to be with people they know than people they don't know. And kinship placement is really important when it can work. But as I have said many times, part of what happens is that the parents of the person with the substance abuse issue feel so guilty and so responsible for whatever happened that caused their own son or daughter to use and to put the custody of their own children in jeopardy, that the grandparents feel a lot of guilt and responsibility for that. And so they they jump at the opportunity to be helpful in some way with their grandchildren. But sometimes those folks aren't necessarily clean and sober either. So when you said that sometimes the parents of the young children don't want their parents to get custody, what's the pattern that you're noticing with that? Why would they not want their parents to have custody? Often they have already cut off from their child. The parents have already said to the person who has a substance use disorder, okay, I'm done. Call me if you need something, but really you can't live here. I can't be here for you. I can't bail you out another time. And then what happens is the kids are taken and the department asks for kinship care possibilities. And when the parents give them the information about their parents and whether or not they're in the area, they're often reluctant to have their parents involved because they they believe their parents are going to tell the department a lot of bad things about them. And so they're worried and they're worried about what kind of control their parent will have over their visitation with their children. So it's very messy. And I've seen many cases where one of the people, if there are two parent, two grandparents, either two men, two women, man and woman, a couple who have been raising grandchildren, one of them is allied with the person who has the problem, the child, and the other is done with that and blames the person and doesn't have seem to have much compassion or tolerance for anything that could be just an honest mistake, missing a visit because they couldn't catch the right bus or not showing up for some other reason that actually is legitimate. Maybe they're ill. But one parent will say, oh, well, that's understandable, and I'm sorry that they're sick. I hope they feel better soon. And the other parent will say, this is just typical. They just can't show up for their kids. They often say all that stuff in front of the kids. So depending on the age and developmental stage of the child, it really does get confusing for the child about 
what's going on. There was a case that I worked on uh, last year where the mother of the children had died of an overdose. And the partner who had just come out of jail was trying to help her get clean, but they weren't really together because she was still using. So he would come over and try to help with the kids. And sometimes her mother would be there or her sister. And they, a lot of times, want to blame somebody else for their child's involvement. And so they said, well, this is the person that got her involved in all this in the beginning. And so we don't want to see him. But turns out he's the father of the children. So has a right to see his children and to worry about their well-being. So he was there telling the mother that the daughter was overdosing in the next room. And the mother just ignored him. And ultimately, she died. And then when she died, the, the sister tried to get custody of the children and the father is really solid in his sobriety and really committed to taking care of and raising his children. So I was tasked with figuring out whether or not he could actually do that. And one of the biggest obstacles was the attitude of the grandparent and the aunt toward this man who wasn't in their family, but was the father of the children. So it was very heart-wrenching to see that the children were really close to him and close to the grandmother and aunt. And it was difficult to figure out if the father got the kids, then was he going to terminate their relationship with the other family members? But it turned out that they were able to, to navigate all of that. He found a really nice couple who had like 25 years of sobriety who offered for him and his children to live with them wow. until he got on his feet. And that's what he needed. So I think they're doing quite well now, but it was really a struggle to get even DCF to admit that perhaps he was telling the truth about what he was trying to do. They wanted to jump onto the same bandwagon the grandmother and aunt were on, which is, this is mostly his fault anyway. You know, it's so hard for people to come to terms with a person's overdose as being their overdose, not someone else's. And there's so much blame that gets thrown around with all of these substance use dynamics. It's it's one of the main tools or weapons, I would say, that people use to try to explain things. And it's not that's not an effective way. So I have another question about this, which is there are many grandparents that don't have custody but are witnessing their child kind of lapse into the world of using drugs and alcohol. And the question that I would have is, how do you know when to step in? How do you know what the right next move is if you think that there's some kind of harm happening or not even harm, neglect or not ideal conditions for the grandchildren? A case I just got off of because I, I really couldn't figure out what's going on with this mother. I was observing her visits with the kids. The kids are in foster care in pre-adoptive placement, three kids. The eldest won't speak to the mother at all. She's 13. And then there are two young kids. One's just a little over a year and one is three. And when I observed the visits, I thought the mother was pretty attentive, but she kept referring to the older child of the two young ones, the girl. There's a girl and a boy. And then the girl is the 13-year-old. Kept referring to this one child as her favorite, which always just is like a red flag for me. 
And then I just felt like there was something going on with this mother that I couldn't put my finger on. She would sometimes show up to the visits looking very appropriate and very put together and having all of her things that she's supposed to bring, like diapers, wipes, snacks for the kids to eat. Or sometimes she wouldn't, and sometimes she would look really terrible. So I thought, you know, something else is going on with this person, so I need to talk with her. So I made a plan to talk with her after the visit with the kids, which ended up not happening because of a communication problem, which was also a red flag for me that she couldn't seem to confirm the visits, couldn't seem to remember what she was supposed to do when. And when I set up this meeting with her, she changed the time and the location of the meeting three times. So I live in South Adley. I was in Westfield. I was waiting for her at the library. When I finally met her, she told me that she had been working and had been caught in traffic. And could I please come to her house to meet with her? So when I did that, I called her from the house. It was very close to the library, so I didn't feel like it was a big ask. But I was beginning to really get even more perplexed by what was going on. She came out and I was getting ready to leave because it took her many minutes from the time I made the phone call. I wasn't going to go into her house because of COVID. We were going to meet outside. So when she finally came out, it was 25 minutes. I was waiting in her driveway. Just didn't make sense. And when she came out and I asked her more questions, she gave me this trauma story, a story that included use of crack and included being in love with the children's father and included lots of hints that she probably wasn't out stuck in traffic, but she was in her bed and she couldn't get up. So she got up and then she told me about an accident that had happened about a year ago after the kids had been taken where she was driving a car and she said that her habit was to look at herself in the mirror while she's driving. She was under the influence at the time and she got T-boned and somebody got killed in that accident in her car. So then she was imagining that there were drones outside of her house. So it turned out that I called the attorney. I said, you know, I don't know whether you've had a psychological evaluation done on this person, but something's seriously wrong with her. And some of it may be a head injury. Some of it could be just severe PTSD but it's all just not fitting together. And ultimately I closed my part of the case and he's not going to even ask for the psych report because he, he knows that she's really needs a lot of work in order to even begin to consider reestablishing her role as a parent. But those kids do not have any family members involved. But part of what is so striking to me about most of the cases is that most of the parents who are now involved with substance and have lost their kids due to substance use are trauma survivors and have underlying psychological issues that have become even more exacerbated by living in the life of using and dealing drugs. So that now, you know, there really are situations that you you can't figure out how the person could even one of my first red flags was when she said she had gone to ad care shortly after the kids were taken. And I said, do you have a recovery coach? No. Do you have a sobriety maintenance plan? 
Do you know how you're going to stay clean? And so she didn't have that. So she's not doing therapy. She's not going to meetings. She's not really involved in anything that looks like recovery. Well, and one thing I want to add, I just want to jump on what you just said, because I think if you look at so many people that have substance use issues, there's underlying trauma. And the interesting thing about trauma is that it mimics just about every other mental illness. It's very hard to do a differential diagnosis when somebody is a trauma survivor because they have depression, they have anxiety, they have nightmares. Sometimes this kind of unrealistic, you know, checked out disassociation that looks like other mental illnesses and it's really underlying trauma. And, you know, we've talked about this many times is that, that you could have trauma. And then once you start living the life of substance abuse, if you're immersed in that, it actually adds more trauma. So you become a complex trauma survivor, which is harder to treat. If it's simple trauma, there's all these techniques that could work, but complex trauma is very difficult to treat. And as you're describing, difficult to diagnose because it looks like so many other mental health issues. I used to work actually for a company in Rhode Island, a nonprofit in Rhode Island that supplied or were a part of a program with DCF to unify families, right? Unify mom, dad with children and mom and dad were typically substances were involved and grandparents were involved or aunts and uncles, or it could be a foster family. What this business did was used peer recovery supports. So other people that had with lived experience with DCF, with reunification, and everything that you said is exactly what we saw in the reunification process. But what's interesting is, I think, and maybe you could speak on this a little bit, before I became involved in the treatment industry with substance use, I used to think that the best thing to do would be to take the kids completely away from mom or from dad. But now having been immersed in this world and having worked for that company, although I didn't work in that particular department, I now see the benefits of not cutting off connection with the children, with parents, but how complicated it is because you've got all of these issues, issues that you just talked about, Mimi, but you've also got the grandparents, the foster parents, the siblings that are now acting as parents for the children judging and they're not understanding why or they may think that the best thing to do is to just cut off from mom and dad and i'm not saying that the children should ultimately be reunited with the parents in a home setting where now they have full custody i'm not saying that but keeping that connection and how complicated it is to help the grandparents and foster parents and siblings understand that it can be to the benefit of the children to stay connected with those parents, regardless of whether they gain custody back or not. Can you just talk a little bit on that piece of it? I agree with that. I, I really think that in most cases that I would support some amount of communication, even if the parental rights are terminated, there needs to be some kind of open adoption agreement so that the parent still has 
some access to the children and, and vice versa. Because now with Facebook, what I see happening in cases that might have been my cases 10 years ago, those kids are getting old enough that they're on Facebook. So they get on Facebook and they find the parent anyway. Children want to be connected or at least understand more about what happened because the rule currently in DCF is if the children are taken, the children are not allowed to ask anything about what's going on, whether mom or dad are going to get them back, whether they're not going to get them back, what's it looking like, what's the goal. It keeps them in the dark in so many ways and it keeps the parents in this position of not knowing how to answer the question. There's a case I'm working on now that doesn't involve substance, but involves the mother's mental illness, where she has had seven children. She's lost three of them permanently to the department. She has the two youngest who are two and three years of age, but she got them back. And now she has two other daughters who she would like to get back and who the department says they're going to give her back but they keep dragging their feet on it because the children have mental health problems. And part of it is the trauma of being in DCF care. And so one of the children has had just a horrible time recently because her sister, who wasn't living in the same place with her, but her sister was returned home and she was promised that she'd be returned home in April. And here it is, June. And she's not returned home because her behaviors are not good. And they don't believe that the mother can manage the behaviors. But I actually believe the mother can manage the behaviors and that they're just continuing to punish this mother by keeping the kids away. And you're punishing the kids. You are. And who knows how much of that acting out is because she's not, she feels rejected and that she's being othered at this moment. That's right. That's right. So those are complications that involve the departments. I think since COVID, the, the department has gotten worse. In what way? I think that there are kids who are in long-term placement because of COVID and because of the courts being backed up. And because if there was a termination of parental rights scheduled, it was postponed. And then the child who's been, I have one case where the child has been in care since she was a month old, and now she's four, she's totally bonded to her pre-adoptive parents. They're totally devoted to her. And the mother, who has, in the past anyway, had a serious alcohol problem, has so much trauma in her history that when I did the evaluation for the court, I feel like the mother would need to do lots of therapy to get at her own trauma history before she'd be able to cope with and handle the kind of trauma that the child would experience if she were removed from her safe place. So that everything that I read, and you know, I've used to be treating pretty much entirely trauma survivors, and during the days of the ever popular multiple personality diagnosis, I was an identified provider of help for that group. But what I see more and more is people who have been severely traumatized, who have used drugs or alcohol to numb their pain, to self-medicate, who have not used therapy, who don't really 
have a place for therapy in their life, who don't understand the benefit of it, who don't really understand child development, and who don't really understand why, if they're sober now, it's not really their fault that the child's been in care for all that time. That's how they see it. And this particular couple offered the mother, the biological mother, they offered to adopt the biological mother and let her come and live in their house with their child. Wow. And she couldn't deal with it. She didn't want to do that because she has another child with another person who she has custody of every other week. That child lives in a homeless shelter with her father the weeks that she's not with her mother. And so it's just such a disruptive history. And the child is so safe and so well-adjusted where she is that I can't see the benefit of moving her with this mother who doesn't want to do therapy, is not really a good candidate for therapy because anybody who doesn't want to do it is not going to really participate. And the kind of depthful therapy that she would need to do to be able to meet the needs of a traumatized four-year-old, it's just not something that she can manage. I think it's very complicated. And I think that the department has a lot of social workers who don't even know the beginning of what a clinical formulation might look like. They're not trained and they're not supervised and they're not understanding conversations that they have with me or with other people who are therapists. They don't even know what many of the words mean. They don't know what to look at or what not to look at or what's important, what's not important. And so they're in charge of the case. So it's extraordinarily complicated. And I think that a lot of the parents who have trauma histories are also people who have histories of being in the care of the department because of their own parents' substance use or other kind of mental illness or many, many other problems. Yeah, it's complicated. It is. It's almost overwhelmingly confusing, so complex. And I also think that people think in terms of black and white, and this is so not black and white. There is so much going on that you really can't think of it as black and white. Also, what comes to mind is generational trauma. Yeah. It's just this cycle that just keeps happening over and over and over again. And how do you get a good grip on it? I think that's really true. We're going to do a quick summary and we will end it. So I'm going to turn it over to Kayla. Let her do the summary. Thank you so much, Mimi, for coming and speaking with us today. You're incredible. Incredible. Just so much information. Thank you. And Kayla, can you go ahead and give us a quick summary? As I'm listening to you, Mimi, it's what's so clear is how complicated these situations are, how family, how complicated family dynamics are when there's somebody in the family that's using substances or abusing substances. There's generational trauma, there's personal trauma, there's the trauma that comes from the abandonment and rejection. There's trauma that comes from the use itself and the the situations that people are living in. And what happens is that when we're looking at grandparents and the children and the parents, Part of what makes it so messy is 
you're balancing all these different people's needs and wants and their own histories and their own family dynamics and making choices. It's like, who's the person that actually is going to get their needs met? And sometimes the needs of the children actually are different than what the needs of the parents or even the grandparents are. That's right. And the, and because there's often many players balancing the choices at these moments and figuring out what makes the most sense is not easy and it takes time. And I just want to throw one more thing in is that you're talking about trauma and how much trauma is built in here. And the commitment it takes to do trauma work is enormous because it's not fast therapy work. And now post-pandemic, we also have a lack of treatment options for people and a lack of availability of therapists. So it makes it even more complicated because even if somebody wants to do it, it's not so easy to get into treatment. And so as always with the Allies and Recovery model and the craft model, what we're talking about is maintaining connection and also safety and good boundaries. How do you focus on connection without having to give up somebody's rights, but really focus on the, the relational connection. Thank you. That's that's a good summary. Well, thank you, ladies. Thank you so much for being here. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.